All righty, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back. Welcome. Um, welcome. So, uh, to start things off, let's uh, just clarify. I am Kevin. And I'm Luke. And I'm Peter. So now that you all know our wondrous, slumptuous, luscious, <laughs> our, wonder, our wonderful sure. luscious voices, <laughs> unlike our lips, <laughs> uh, let's get started. So, Peter... Uh, went during the spring break on a trip with the uh, Whitworth Wind Symphony. Wind Symphony to oh. Thailand, um, and so he's going to tell us a bit about that. Uh, let's just start off with um, what was the main purpose of Whitworth taking a bunch of people, sticking them in a plane, and flying them uh, halfway around the world. Oh, great question. Well, this was actually um, a tour that the Whitworth Wind Symphony went on, music tour. And generally, the ensembles here at Whitworth um, go on tours pretty often. Um, just a few years back, the choir, the Whitworth Choir, went on a tour of Norway. This next year, they're headed off to the Czech Republic. Um, the orchestra recently took a tour to the Eastern Seaboard. And I think the last Wind Symphony tour was to California. So it's just a wonderful way um, for members of the ensemble to build a lot of camaraderie with one another. Um, there are wonderful experiences on tour besides um, being able to go and be ambassadors for the university, um, go and share the Whitworth Music Department with um, people who might be interested. Um, and in fact, one of the highlights of the tour was a chance that we had to um, visit Chiang Mai International School. Um, and it's, it's located in Chiang Mai, and they have students K through 12 um, from all over Asia and the Americas. And um, a number of the students in their band were very much interested in, in um, pursuing music after high school. And so it was really, I think, a neat experience for us and for them to uh, get to know each other and to be able to talk about um, school after high school. Wow. All right. How did, because um, I'm assuming that people in Thailand do not speak English, um, how did that affect your ability to communicate outside of just playing whatever song it is that you guys are playing? Mm, great question. So, um, yeah, it was, you know, it was really interesting. Um, we, we were in two cities, Bangkok and Chiang Mai, and there was a pretty noticeable difference in communication. Um, Bangkok, just because it's a larger city and a lot more cosmopolitan, um, had far more English speakers. So actually, most of the time, um, people would understand what you meant. Um, and when we were out and about, a lot of what we were doing was shopping or getting food. And with all those business transactions, it's actually pretty easy to barter um, because they'll, they'll know, oh, 100 baht, 200 baht. Um, they, know, they know the English numbers. So that helps a lot. Um, but also we learned just a little bit of basic conversational tie, which really helped. Like where is the bathroom? Like where is the bathroom, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, nice. So... Um, in regards to, um, like, because I, I, Whitworth coming from uh, a, a Christian background as a, an institution, I'm assuming that there was an aspect of the trip that was trying to not just represent the university, but represent Christ and, and Christianity and, and the church internationally, um, which in Asia is, uh, to some extent, rather a, a unique opportunity and experience. So how did the um, Christians on the trip go about doing that? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think one of the biggest opportunities that we had to do that was, again, at Chiang Mai International School, um, mostly because we spent um, so much time with the people who were there. 
Um, the performances at um, Mahidol University and Payap University, um, generally afterwards we didn't have as much time to talk with audience members or, or get to know, um, know the, the people who came to listen. Um, but at the Chiang Mai school, it was a Christian um, private school there in Chiang Mai. And um, that was just a really great opportunity. We did what's called a side-by-side -side with the student musicians at the school. So basically, um, we just made one huge big band. And so all of our flute players sat with their flute players. And um, it was just a really good way to, to get to know those students. Um, so that was a big part of it, I think, just... Just um, showing what it is to be a Christian and to be a musician and to, um, to let your passion for Christ um, inform your musicianship. Um, but again, at Payap, um, that was actually another Christian university there in Chiang Mai. And so that was a really great opportunity. We actually played in Leviticus Concert Hall. And, um, and yeah, that, I don't know if there was so much at that performance that was explicitly Christian, but we were definitely... Um, mindful that we were representatives of a Christian university playing in a Christian hall, and uh, it was just a great experience. <clears throat> so in regards to um, your, your venues where you played at, did you mainly play at universities then? Yeah, yeah, two out of those three were universities. The only, um, the only building that wasn't a university was at Chiang Mai International School, and that was a pretty um, pretty good-sized cafeteria auditorium. It doubled, I think, as their as their stage for theater and music productions. And so, how often were you playing? Were you playing like every day or multiple times a day? No, actually, it was a pretty casual tour. Um, I I heard from uh, members of the Wind Symphony who had been a part of the ensemble for the California tour. They were playing, I think, almost every other day. Um, so no, when we were in Thailand, it was a it was a lot less rigorous. We had those three performances, and then um, we also had one day for a very unique opportunity. We actually had the chance to um, to play and rehearse in a clinic um, with two of the composers of pieces that we were performing. Um, Chaipruk Makara, who is a native Thai um, composer and musician and conductor, and Torsten Volman, who is a German composer who lives in Thailand. And so we had an opportunity to um, to meet both of them. So really, we only had four days where we were um, where we were really kind of seriously working on our music. Huh. That's really cool that you got to meet those composers, though. That you pieces you were playing. Oh my gosh. Oh yeah, no, it was it was a great experience. Um, they were they were just really wonderful people, and it was um, it really informed uh, the way I think that we played the music. Um, I'm I'm the pianist for the Wind Symphony, so I didn't actually have a piano part on either of their pieces. Wait, wait, wait. it's a Wind Symphony with a, a, I thought the piano was a string instrument. Yes, yeah, no, I, I get to sneak in as part of the percussion section, <laughs> uh -huh. and uh, so I'm because no there are there hammers. Because <laughs> the... there are hammers, yeah. So, um, yeah, no, I it's it's been a really good gig to to be a percussionist pianist in the Wind Symphony. Um, so, yeah, because of that, I was able to just sit in the hall um, during the clinics and watch as they conducted their own pieces and um, take some notes on uh, what they had to say about the ensemble's performance. And um, I, think, I think most everyone in the ensemble would agree that um, especially being, being conducted on a piece you're playing by the composer um, just gives so much depth of meaning. Um, you can see their expressions. You can see... Um, 
their their arm movements. Um, Makara especially had a very distinctive conducting style, um, and he he would use um, I don't know. It's it's very non-Western. It was it it seemed like it was very Thai. Um, he he would do this thing with a bear claw where he would he would claw both of his hands up in the air above his head and point at a section when he wanted them to come in very strong, um, fortissimo. <laughs> And at times he would just drop out entirely. He would stop beating time. And uh, so, I don't know. It was just, it was a really unique experience to, to watch that. Wow, I've never heard of uh, conducting like that. <laughs> I, I'm interested just because um, I would, uh, maybe it's, <clears throat> excuse me, maybe it's a bad idea to, it, just for those of you who are wondering about the spontaneous coughing and <clears throat> the frog trying to hop out of my voice, the illness is, <laughs> um, got two thirds of the studio under its grip, mm. so spreading to all of us. Mm. Yes. <laughs> so um, we will we will try to stay alive uh, through the show at least. Um, with the the wind, because I feel like Thai instruments would have developed differently, being so far away from the Western world. So, does there um, how big of an effect does these Western style instruments have on the sound of a Thai music done by a Thai director. Mm, yeah, yeah, no, that's that's definitely an aspect. Um, and you know, there's there's been interesting developments. Um, I before we went on the on the trip, I had an opportunity to read a little bit about Thailand, and um, it's interesting because well well into um, well into the early days of, uh, I guess, cross-germination, um, East and West, um, Thailand was really ahead of the curve um, in what we would call in Western standards modernization, um, which has had some interesting effects. So um, basically, early on, uh, Thailand adopted um, kind of a Republican monarchy democracy. They were fascinated with the West. Um, they would they would conduct a lot of trade and especially in the inner court and in um, and in the higher classes it was all the rage to adopt anything that could be grabbed from the West. So I think that that does inform their music, um, and you find that with a, with a lot of um, a lot of Asia, um, and some some countries like China have stronger musical traditions. I mean the Chinese opera has remained a, a distinctive sound even. Even today, when um, when you have Chinese symphony orchestras playing, you know German composers, Beethoven, Bach, um, but I, you know, I think um, at least at least I thought Makara had an interesting statement. Um, his piece, uh, his piece, I felt was a very unique mix of a, a Thai cultural vernacular and Western classical music. And at one point in this clinic, um, he said. Um, he, he was talking about a section that has a fugue, um, a, a imitative counterpoint, and it's a very Western Germanic style. Um, and the theme that he used was a Thai folk song. And basically what he said to the ensemble is, think of this section as if Bach were Thai. And, um, and that to me really represented his mix of, oh wow, I'm a Thai composer, I'm using themes and sounds and harmonies from my own heritage, but he conducts um, he conducts the classics of the the Western classical music tradition. Um, he's thoroughly acquainted with Bach, knows how to use imitative counterpoint, and so it was an interesting mix of Western tools and Eastern sounds. Absolutely. 
Are there any sort of Asian instruments that are still in use today, commonly, or um, even that have spread into Western usage in orchestras and, and such? Great question. Yeah, absolutely. Um, one, one great example of Eastern instruments working their way into the orchestra actually is the percussion section. Um, and I'm, I'm not entirely sure how early this was happening. I know by Mozart's time, by Haydn's time, um, use of the timpani, the kettle drum, um, was pretty prevalent. Um, and usually, or often, it was one of the only percussion instruments um, that, that accompanied the orchestra. And that was actually a, a direct, um, I guess, theft from, from drums of the Middle East and Asia. Um, and uh, a number of percussion instruments have come to us um, from Asia. The China symbol is an <laughs> obvious example. Um, and so I think more than people know, um, a fascination with the sounds, the drums, the percussion instruments of the East has worked its way into Western classical music. Um, and I think the opposite is also true. Um, I remember reading about, uh, about Chinese composers um, using the Western Symphony Orchestra, the string sections, you know, brass, winds, um, very European, but incorporating their own traditional instruments. Um, I remember, oh, I don't, I don't remember the name of the composer, but I remember reading about this piece he had written. It was a concerto for Sheng, which is a traditional Chinese wind instrument and a full symphony orchestra. So, yeah. All right, well, kind of steering away a little bit from the music side of your trip. Um, I was talking to one of my hallmates, uh, you know Logan, of yeah, course. Yeah. Uh, he was telling me that you guys had a really, uh, really cool experience uh, with elephants. Can Ooh, you tell us yes. a little bit about that? Oh, yeah. No, that was, that was a really interesting morning. Um, that was towards the end of the trip. We were in Chiang Mai, and um, we actually had a, a morning where we were able to go to an elephant camp. And, uh, yeah, basically you walk in, and it's just rows, these stalls um, with elephants. And you can buy bananas or um, uh, bamboo stuffed with, like, sugar. And you can feed it to the elephants. So they'll take it and eat it up. Um, and also they're, they're trained to do a number of things if you want to get a picture with them. So um, they'll wrap their trunk around you or drape their trunk over your shoulder. Uh, they'll give you a kiss with the end of their trunk, which is really slobbery, pretty slimy. Um, or they'll take a hat and put it on your head. So yeah, we got pictures of the elephants. Um, we had a chance a little while after that to see an exhibition where um, the elephants would do all sorts of amazing things. They would paint, they would play soccer, they would pile logs, they would stand on their heads. Well, not not that, but a lot, lot of really cool things. Um, and then finally at the very end, yeah, we got to take an elephant ride, which was um, really bumpy and really scary at first, and then just totally amazing. It was it was really cool. How high up are you when you're on the back oh, of an elephant? Oh yeah, it's it's a good oh, probably ten to fifteen feet. Pretty high up oh there. My gosh. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, you they they kind of strap you in. This was your um your first time out of the country, right? Yes, that's correct. And so, what was the biggest piece of like? culture shock maybe that's not the best word but like the oh my goodness this is really different here than what i'm used to in the west mm. one one big thing was water um i don't know like i think especially gr growing up in spokane going here to whitworth in spokane um 
I feel comfortable drinking any sort of water because we have the aquifer. It's all it's all um, pure and fresh and clean. And I mean, you can drink tap water. You don't need to filter it like even in Seattle. Um, but traveling to Thailand, um, even through our layover in, in uh, Taipei, um, it was always bottled water, never fresh fruit unless you washed it yourself or peeled it. Um, the food you ate had to be hot and cooked thoroughly um, so that you wouldn't get any nasty bacteria. So I don't know, the, um, the water and food was kind of a, a strange thing. After a few days, you got used to it. But at first, I remember really being freaked out like, oh, I can't use that water faucet. I need to buy bottled water so that I know that it's okay. So, Do people in Thailand have to drink bottled water too? Or is it more just like a body accustomed to different sort of diseases and stuff yeah I think I think it's a little I think it's a little bit of both um, I know I know um, even if you were to travel to Europe um, where they they do have clean drinking water of course um, I think even then sometimes um, just because there are different local bacteria you'd probably be better off with bottled water but um, I do know in Thailand lots of times people do prefer um, the bottled water and in restaurants they'll serve bottled water. They don't ever um, get it out of the tap. They'll <laughs> they'll take the bot bottled water and pour it into a nice glass and give it to you on the table. So um, the other thing one of our tour guides mentioned um, that when he would travel from Bangkok to Chiang Mai, um, he lived in Bangkok, when he would travel to Chiang Mai he had to be careful and wash his face in bottled water because um, otherwise the the natural water would irritate his skin. So I know just some interesting things that that you don't really think about living in the states. So the um, sort of the like, because I, I hear a lot about China in the news, and a fair amount about Japan, but I don't necessarily hear about Thailand. Uh, just kind of give us a, a bit of background on Thailand as a country. Like, what kind of government do they have? Um, what kind of culture are they in, especially maybe in comparison to other Asian countries hmm yeah well I'll, I'll try and do the best I can I'm not um, I'm no expert I I read a little bit before the trip and and picked up bits and pieces while I was there um, so the the nation of Thailand um, starts with a, a people group um, at least as I understand it called um, the Thai TAI people um, and I think historians believe that they migrated there from the Northeast. And early on, it was a lot of city-states. I think kind of like how we imagine um, life in Greece. Um, and so there are, there are famous cities, the city of Chiang Rai, um, the city of Ayutthaya, the city of Lopuri. And um, these were ancient kingdoms, and they were each ruled by their own kings. Um, so they had kind of local nobility. Um, and I think early on, there was a lot of war with Burma and Laos, if I remember correctly. Um, so I think, at least in the early days, it was a pretty hectic, um, chaotic place to live. Uh, um, but uh, late, later on, I think it was, I don't know which, which one of the Thai kings it was. Um, anyways, they, they reached kind of a, a unified um, state where everyone, all, all these independent city-states um, formed Thailand. And um, of course, in that time, though, I think it was called the Kingdom of Siam. Um, like if you've ever seen The King and I, um, that would be an example of what Thailand was like earlier, around like 16, 1700s. Um, they had pretty early contact with the French Empire, I believe. 
um, through trade. And I think also a lot of um, French, uh, I think Jesuit Catholic missionaries who came and would teach medicine, um, of course, would teach uh, Catholic Christianity and sciences, mathematics. Um, and so, yeah, from a, from a pretty early time, they were acquainted with um, Western culture. Um, but I think they were still very resistant to, um, to giving up their culture, understandably. Um, and if you, if you talk with the Thai people, um, for example, our guides would mention often um, how proud they were that Thailand had never actually been truly colonized by a foreign power. Um, they had remained an independent nation in Asia, which is uh, pretty remarkable, I think. Definitely, it's rather unique in that part of the world. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, so yeah, that that was in the early days, um, and the the monarchy has always been and has remained in Thailand, um, just uh, hugely important. Um, I uh, I read a, a novel written by one of the Thai prime ministers. Um, his name is Tula Chandra, and in the novel, one of the characters talks about. Um, her awe at seeing the the king. I think it was Rama the Rama the seventh, eighth, ninth. I don't remember. Um, one of the, the Thai kings, um, and in that time it was it was considered um, improper, inappropriate to even look at the king's face. You would bow your head. You would look away. Um, it was it was not something that a respectable person did. Um, but of course, with the turn of the century, some pretty big revolutions. Um, came along, and there was a party that was um, uh, pretty interested in in bringing more of a democratic system to Thailand. Um, and I, I don't know all of the politics of how that works, but as I understand it now, there's a uh, mix of, I think, republican democracy and monarchy. Um, but the, the monarchy, I don't think, is similar to um, like what we would think of with Great Britain, for example, where the monarch is a figurehead. Um, the king is still very active in government and um, and in leading programs and initiatives. Um, the the Thai people, um, they kind of I, I don't know if they rank their kings or express their appreciation for their kings by um, looking at how many projects the monarch has worked on. So if they're very proud of their king, they'll say, "Oh, this king has he's done four thousand projects during his reign," um, and so they they really value those monarchs who are hardworking. Um, I know that they'll say with Rama V, wow, he worked well into his 80s. Um, even in his old age, he was still um, ruling the kingdom, making sure the people had food and water and shelter and were protected. And so they have, they have just a very high amount of respect for their king. And even some laws about um, respecting the king, respecting images of the king. Uh, you, you have to stand when the king's anthem is played. So they take it very seriously, absolutely. Is the king's anthem different than, like, the national anthem? It is. It's different from the national anthem. And the king has his own, well, probably more than the king. I think the royal family, in fact, has their own yellow flag that is different from the Thai national flag. Yeah, really interesting. Um, also, you'll see, you'll see images, um, paintings, and photographs of the king and the queen and the royal family everywhere. Um, I think now that it's... Now that it's appropriate to look at the king, to think of the king as, um, as uh, I don't know, I, I think a lot of people, um, again, in this book that I read by Tula Chandra, um, one character mentioned, wow, now I feel like I can say I love my king. Before I had to say I respected and feared the king, but now I can say, oh, I love my king. 
And I think um, I think that's the attitude in Thailand now. Um, there's there's a bit more comfort with the royal family and and the monarchy, and so people love to put up displays about the king and queen, and uh, the princes and princesses. So outside of businesses and inside of businesses, they'll have um, golden framed pictures of the king at work, um, looking at fields, reading the newspaper. Um, they're everywhere. They're on the streets. Um, they're in the media. You'll see it all the time. It's really cool. In some ways, it um, it almost reminds me of how, um, as Christians, to some extent, we are to to look at at God. He is um, at the same time this this being that is um, extremely powerful, far more than us. But at the um, is also like a, a close personal friend who's mm. got our back and looks out for us and mm. and helps us as much as we can. Is that sort of a a similar feel? Yes. Oh, yeah. No, that captures it really well. Yeah. There's there's a there's a sense of relatability. I think. Um, I think where um, where where you can say yes, the the king is the king is a friend to the Thai people. Yeah. So, um, since Thailand is in Asia, um, isn't isn't sort of like the main religion uh, Buddhist? Correct. Yes, absolutely. Um, I I forget the exact the exact statistic. I think it's somewhere upwards of um, ninety percent of the population. I'm sure it's somewhere around. 90 to 98, um, an extremely large percentage of the population is Buddhist. Uh, did you get to visit any, any of the Buddhist temples at all? Yes. Oh yeah. We, we did a lot of tours of temples. Um, and we, we could have done a lot more in Bangkok. There are hundreds of temples. Um, it's, uh, I guess it's kind of like, kind of like churches in Spokane or in, or in any, um, in any American small town. But probably even more, even more uh, Buddhist temples per capita than churches in America. I'd say um, they're everywhere. You can you can hardly walk down a street without passing one. Oh my gosh! So did you encounter uh, many monks then in yeah. those temples? Yeah, yeah. From time to time, um, from time to time, there would be a monk um, in the temple. Uh, I know some friends of mine actually had an opportunity to talk with a monk. Um, who had, I think, had an education in England. And so he spoke fluent English, talked with them for like a good half hour. Um, uh, at one point, we did see uh, a group of um, soon-to-be initiates. Um, so they, they wore white robes, and they were walking into one building in a temple complex, and uh, they were to go through an initiation ceremony. Um, and then when they come out, that's when they can wear... Um, the orange robes of monks and novices. Wow. Um, in regards to like food, what mm. was the like most most different? Most like, dang! I this I've never quite tasted something like this before. Sure, sure, yeah. Um, I don't know. There were there were a lot of unique foods. Um, really fun to try, and. And food is everywhere in Thailand. Just a, a quick, quick word about that. Um, in fact, a lot of people who live in Bangkok um, don't even cook at home. Uh, lots of times, people will have lunch and dinner and breakfast uh, just out on the street, out in the market. Um, you can buy fresh fruit pretty much anywhere. 
Um, and there are street vendors all over the place, not just in like commercial districts, but like really everywhere. Um, one morning, we, uh, a, a group of friends and I, we um, left the hotel in the morning, just went on a walk around the block. And we passed probably a good seven or eight food carts just on like a four or five block walk around Bangkok. And so food is food is everywhere. Um, there were some there were some really different foods. Uh, one one famous one is durian. It's a, a fruit that can be found in Thailand, and it's just the strangest thing. It has a really, really strange, awful smell. People call it kind of kind of like gasoline smelling. Um, it smells just really strong, but the taste is really quite sweet. Um, so I I had a little bit of durian. I had a little bit of durian ice cream, and uh, the ice cream was. I don't know. I, I didn't like it very much. Um, but that, that was definitely different. Um, uh, another good example, we were in uh, a little village on a mountainside outside of Chiang Mai, and the village was called Doi Pui, and we stopped in at a restaurant there, and they had um, chicken curry soup that was way more spicy than I was expecting. Um, it really took me by surprise, but it was very, very good. Is there a lot of spicy food there? Yeah, yeah, it kind of depends. Um, an interesting thing, uh, generally the older generations in Thailand are the ones who eat the spicy food. Um, the younger generations don't do it as much because it's too spicy for them. Um, I think it's probably something about taste buds dying off as you get older or something. But um, uh, yeah, there was a lot of spicy food to be had. I, there were there were maybe three or four situations where I would... Um, I would eat something and not realize how spicy it was until I had taken a few bites. Um, but it was all delicious, really good. Um, I tried octopus for the first time. That was that was pretty interesting. Uh, we, yeah, a little bit of octopus tentacle with the um, the suction cups. And yeah, it was pretty chewy. <laughs> wow. Um, what kind of motor vehicles were there? Are, are they? Uh, do you see a lot of Western makes, or is it mostly stuff that's more indigenous to Asia? And also, like, how polite is the etiquette? I know there are some countries out there where, um, like in the United States, people stop at the stoplight even if there isn't anyone else out there. And then there are some countries where it's like a stoplight. What's that? <laughs> yeah. Oh, that that was a that was a really fun part of Thailand. Um, as far as the as far as the make and model, I remember seeing a lot of um, Toyota, Hyundai uh, um, cars cars that are manufactured in Asia. Um, I don't remember as many Chevys or truck, you know, Ford trucks. Um, but uh, yeah, in general, um, yeah, pretty pretty new looking cars. Um, but as far as as far as like the cities go, um, getting around in Chiang Mai or in Bangkok. Um, a really popular mode of transportation are the, uh, the taxis and the tuk-tuks. Um, so taxis generally are color-coded, um, and it depends on what city you're in. Uh, I don't remember how it worked for, for Bangkok. There were lots of colors in Bangkok. Um, like, for example, sometimes like a pink taxi, say, would only go from the airport to downtown Bangkok. Um, uh, some, like, a, I think... Ooh, I don't remember the colors, but in Bangkok, there are some taxis that are private where you'll barter with the taxi driver and then they'll just take you to their destination and then others that are public taxis. So you'll barter um, and the, the driver will take you to your destination, but he might pick up other passengers along the way and take them to their destinations too. 
Um, and so, yeah, in Chiang Mai, there were, I think, just two types of taxis. Taxis for inside the city and taxis that would take you from Chiang Mai to a different city. Um, and they're really fun. They're, the, the back is open, so it's basically like a truck with a canopy over the bed. Um, and yeah, the back is open and no seatbelts. You just kind of sit there uh, along the sides and it's really fun to watch the world go by. Um, uh, yeah, and then tuk-tuks, those are kind of more personal. Um, it's kind of like a big glorified tricycle motorbike. <laughs> and the, the back of it has a little carriage just big enough to seat two. And um, they just zip through traffic. The tuk-tuks, um, they're, you know, they're smaller, a lot smaller than the cars. And um, motorcycles you see everywhere. Um, I'd say they're, mm, I, you know, I bet there are probably more motorcycles than cars in Thailand. Um, just because they're so convenient, they're economical, um, and they can just squeeze through traffic. You're absolutely right. In Thailand, um, they have traffic suggestions, not traffic laws. <laughs> <laughs> so things things can be a little dicey from time to time. Um, but, it, you know, it works pretty well. People are pretty casual about traffic. Um, and uh, generally, if, if someone's drifting your way, you just honk the horn and they'll scoot back over. Um, pe people use the horn there a lot just to communicate um, far more than you'd see here in the States, I think. So yeah, yeah, those were those are some pretty neat experiences. The last interesting thing about travel um, in Bangkok, Bangkok especially, um, the city is actually built on a swamp. It was constructed um, uh, actually pretty late in Thailand's history. It's a relatively new city. Um, I mean, we're talking like 800 AD, but for Thailand, that's still really new. Um, yeah, built on a swamp. So there are canals um, everywhere, and there's the Chao Praya, which is a big river that flows right through the center of the city. And so um, you, can, you can take a taxi or a tuk-tuk, but you can also take a boat pretty much anywhere. Um, or you can take a boat up the Chao Praya, kind of like traveling on the freeway until you get to a suburb and then you can take a tuk-tuk to get to the shop you want or whatever. So yeah, a lot of boat rides um, in Thailand, which was really fun, yeah. Uh, just briefly, for those of you, you may have heard some loud reverberating um, bass music that is not the noisy neighbors. That is preparations for Dub Club in the Hub. Dub Club in the Hub! It is put on by the wonderful <coughs> people that put this show on as well, uh, Whitworth. FM studios. Uh, so if you are on campus, as soon as this show ends is when Dub Club officially starts, and you should totally go there. It is going to be awesome. We are giving away like 50 t-shirts. We have a professional DJ. The lighting looks fantastic. There's toilet paper. So make sure to come. It's going to be <laughs> from 8 to 11 in the hub, because it's called Dub Club in the hub. Right when you walk in, you'll hear it. So... And definitely before go. before you walk in, you'll definitely see it. Yep. Long dramatic pause. <laughs> so we are going to, on that note, take a bit of a break, listen to some custom songs here, uh, courtesy of Luke himself. Yes. Uh, so what kind of stuff do you have for us this week? Uh, I just have a, a small playlist uh, of a few songs. Uh, I'm going to start you off with a little bit of a, a pick-me-up. It's called Mambo Number no. 5, so I hope you enjoy. 
Uh, and we also would like to thank, just in case um, he can't make it through to the end for ending <laughs> credits and all that stuff, we would l like to thank uh, Peter Underhill so much for uh, coming in here and talking to us about Thailand, about music. Um, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much for coming. Oh, today. thank you. It's been great yeah, to be on the you, show. Peter.